Hey guys, welcome to Grifter, a brand new podcast about famous con artists, scammers, and fraudsters who live by the rule of fake it till you make it. If stories about glamour, subterfuge, and deception are your kind of thing, then this podcast is perfect for you. I'm your host, Sonali Belgies, and today we're going to talk about Carrie Farrell, a charming 20-something grifter from Utah who swindled her way through Brooklyn's hipster community, passing bad checks and taking thousands of dollars from her victims while telling colourful stories about coughing up blood, cancer, and unwanted pregnancies. It's March 2009. A petite 22-year-old Korean-American with a massive tattoo of a phoenix on her chest and a cute pixie haircut strolled into Vice Magazine's office in Williamsburg, Brooklyn to interview for a position as an admin assistant. The girl introduced herself as Carrie Farrell and said she'd previously worked at the concert promotion company Golden Voice in New York. The company organized huge music festivals like Coachella near Palm Springs in California. Carrie was gregarious, witty and adorable and instantly charmed her interviewers. They hired her on the spot. A few days into the new job, a male colleague struck up a conversation with Carrie. Carrie was flirty and inquisitive and asked him personal questions about his sexual history. While initially taken aback by Carrie's bluntness, the colleague enjoyed her attention and felt an attraction to her. But he decided he wanted to do some background research on her first. So, he googled her. The first thing that popped up? A picture of Carrie on the Salt Lake City Police Department's most wanted list. Wanted on five different warrants, including passing $60,000 in bad checks, forgery, and retail theft. Vice immediately fired her. They eventually learned that in the one week that Carrie had been in their gainful employment, she'd been busy. According to a Vice employee who'd worked somewhat directly with Carrie, Carrie had phoned up a few clubs and asked to be included on their guest lists. She claimed that Vice magazine wanted to review the shows. She'd also booked a table at The Box, a popular restaurant in New York, for a surprise birthday party for the publisher of Vice. In the correspondence, she'd said she was emailing from her personal email because of server issues. She asked them not to directly contact the publisher since it was a surprise. In addition, she'd also ordered a box of Flight of the Concords DVDs from HBO to review, without telling anybody advice. The journalist Dori Shafrir penned an exclusive, detailed article about Carrie's criminal escapades in Brooklyn in the New York Observer. Carrie was christened the hipster grifter because she preyed upon skinny jean-wearing, bearded Williamsburg hipsters and managed to convince them that she had cancer, was pregnant, and worked for Golden Voice. Amongst her noticeable traits, she has a tattoo on her back that reads, quote, I love beards, and enjoys passing notes to strangers at the bar that read, quote, I want to give you a hand job with my mouth, or, quote, I want you to throw a hot dog down my hall. She often signed them, quote, 
Korean Abdul Jabbar. When stories of Carrie's grifting in Brooklyn's hipster scene were published by The Observer, Carrie became a sort of internet celebrity. Websites posted tales of people claiming to have been conned by her, accusing her of faking pregnancies and cancer while allegedly swindling them. Carrie's story was so sensational, it even hit the small screen in an episode of The Law and Order. So, how did Carrie manage to con her way into the hearts, beds, and wallets of several New Yorkers? This episode attempts to break down her story and how she came to be known as the hipster grifter. Five months of age, Carrie was adopted from South Korea by Karen and Terry Farrell. A year and a half later, her parents converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and moved from Phoenix to Salt Lake City. In an interview with ABC News, shortly after being convicted for fraudulent activities, Carrie spoke about her childhood. She said she grew up in a quintessential middle-class suburban family. Her parents were incredibly supportive of her when she was growing up. She learned how to play the piano at three and a half years of age. She participated in gymnastics and dance and even tried her hand at tennis for a while. Carrie was a straight A student. In fact, she was so advanced, she actually skipped the first grade. She did eventually have to move back because she couldn't handle the older kids. When Carrie got to high school, things started to change. She couldn't connect with her teachers. She would often ask tough and uncomfortable questions about things like the war in the Philippines or how Columbus slaughtered millions of people. The teachers didn't know what to do with her. She eventually dropped out of high school. In 2004, at the age of 17, Carrie now lived with her father after her parents divorced and her mother moved to Arizona. Like many teenagers at the time, she spent a lot of time on MySpace. She began chatting with a 19-year-old boy named Casey. The two hit it off and started to date. Carrie told Casey she was 18 when her driver's license clearly indicated she was 17. When Casey questioned her about it, she explained that there was something wrong with her birth certificate since she'd been adopted from South Korea. Casey decided to believe her and they continued to date. In early 2005, Carrie moved to Arizona to live with her mother who had remarried to a man named Calvin. However, three months later, Carrie ended up moving back to Salt Lake City where she temporarily lodged with some friends. Within a week, Carrie told Casey she was receiving text messages, rape and death threats from phone numbers she didn't recognize. She said she and her roommates suspected that the messages were from a local kid. She also said that they went to the kid's family's house and slashed tires and broke windows. Casey couldn't believe his ears. That summer, Carrie and Casey moved in together. 
She was working as a technician at a kennel that would later file a civil judgment against her for $1,201. Casey did notice that Carrie had a mysteriously large sum of money, but he didn't know where it came from. He felt as though she was his sugar mama in a way. She didn't want him to go to work since she had the money. In addition, Carrie would sometimes act strangely. She once accused him of cheating on her and claimed that someone had pictures of him with his ex-girlfriend. This was confusing to Casey. It was impossible since Carrie was Casey's first girlfriend. One night, Carrie told him she was pregnant and a few nights later, she told him she was going to commit suicide. It was almost as though she enjoyed his attention, his concern for his well-being. She wanted to be cared for. She wanted some sort of validation. On one occasion, Carrie received a notice from a bank saying that someone had tried to cash a check of hers. Furious, she accused one of her roommates of cashing that check and called the fraud unit of the local police department to complain. In the autumn of 2005, Carrie began to deposit checks into Casey's account. She deposited hundreds of dollars at a time. She claimed that she'd finally been able to access the money that she hadn't been able to get to because of the previous fraud on her checking account. She also claimed she couldn't use her ATM card to draw out money. So she asked Casey to cash those checks and give her the money. Casey began to get suspicious. He'd requested the bank to see if the checks were legitimate. The bank teller confirmed that the checks were in fact real and for almost two weeks, the checks, totaling $10,600, continued to arrive. Eventually, the bank realized the checks were written from an account that didn't exist. When Casey learned about this, he tried to break things off with Carrie but she then suddenly announced that she had cancer. She also said that she was being stalked again. Casey decided he couldn't leave her when she was so vulnerable. And so, they stayed together. However, that only lasted a few more months. They eventually parted ways when Casey filed for bankruptcy. He'd bought a used car with a five-year loan at 20% interest which Carrie was supposed to make payments on. She'd only been able to make two of those payments. In February 2008, Carrie met a young man named Brian. He happened to be an ex-boyfriend's roommate. They started to date and spent a lot of time together. Around that time, Carrie had owed her mother and stepfather quite a bit of money. She was supposed to wire the money to them via Western Union. But in the process of wiring that money of $8,300, she'd fabricated a form from Western Union. When her stepfather, Calvin, went to Western Union with the form Carrie had given him, he was told that it was a fake and he almost got arrested. Carrie eventually fessed up and spent 48 hours in jail. Her new boyfriend, Brian, bailed her out. The bail amount? $5,000. 
Carrie told Brian that she worked for Golden Boys and 24 Ticks, another concert organizing company. She told him she'd previously interned at these companies while majoring in music at the University of Utah and then got hired on. She also said she could take Brian and his friends to Chicago for the Pitchfork Music Festival. But before they were set to leave for the festival, she suddenly called to say that it had been delayed. It had been pushed back a few days. She'd kept saying this over and over again, and in the end, they never did go. Brian later learned that Carrie never worked for 24 Ticks, and probably never worked for Golden Voice either. She'd never graduated from the University of Utah. Hell, she'd never even graduated high school. In August 2008, Carrie moved to New York. She told Brian that Golden Voice was letting her transfer to its New York office. She had a court date in Salt Lake City in December, at which point, she said, she would return the money he'd posted for her bail. In the end, she never showed up. August 2008, Carrie moved to New York and lived in a tiny room on Bergen Street on the Crown Heights Prospect Heights border. She fit right in with Brooklyn's hipster community. She was affable, outgoing and gregarious and had a bunch of friends, many of whom were men. She met Bobby, a 23-year-old Rutgers student at a Girl Talk concert in Manhattan in October that year. They eventually spent the night together and the next morning decided to stay in touch. Over the next couple of weeks, Bobby and Carrie would meet almost every weekend. She told him she worked for Golden Voice and even slipped him a business card. She did have an ATM card that never seemed to work. She couldn't use it as a debit card and could only get cash out of it from one bodega near her apartment. So, she would end up borrowing money from him, with promises to pay it back as soon as possible. Soon, she told Bobby that she might be pregnant. She claimed she'd taken six pregnancy tests, of which three were positive. When Bobby suggested she go to a gynecologist, she stopped mentioning the pregnancy. Bobby and Carrie had been seeing each other for about six weeks when one of his friends mentioned that Carrie said she had cancer. When Bobby confronted Carrie, she told him a crazy story about how she was estranged from her adoptive parents, how they were abusive towards her, and how she didn't know who her birth parents were. At the time, it didn't occur to Bobby how odd it was for someone who was dying from cancer and who only had three months left to live to move from Salt Lake City to New York. And also, Carrie seemed perfectly healthy. Bobby's friends told him not to get too attached to someone who was going to be dead in three months. But he really liked Carrie and enjoyed spending time with her. And so, he continued to see her. Carrie and Bobby would often have depressing conversations about how she didn't want to die. She told him her parents were doctors and how she'd seen patients in the last stages of life. She said she didn't want to go through that. Her stories felt so rich and real, and Bobby never thought to question them. 
After all, how does someone question a person who says they have cancer? One day, Bobby received a text message from Carrie. She'd coughed up blood and I was at the Bellevue Hospital. Bobby thought that this was it, that Carrie might actually die. Upon visiting the hospitals, the doctors told him that they couldn't find any cancer in Carrie's lungs. Carrie dismissed the diagnosis and said that her cancer was the kind of thing that could show up on a scan one day and disappear the next. At the time, she was very, very convincing. The weekend before Christmas, Carrie and Bobby went to a party together. Carrie was dancing and smoking pot and living her best life. Bobby thought that it was strange that she was smoking pot when she was dying of lung cancer. But again, he didn't want to question her. A couple of nights later, while Bobby was at dinner with his parents, Carrie texted to say she was depressed. She'd also threatened to kill herself the previous night. She told Bobby that she had an ex a psychotic ex-boyfriend, a criminal masterbind who could hack into any cell phone. He'd been stalking her in Utah, and he'd even broken into her house and stolen money. She said that when she tried to log on to her instant messenger, that she was already logged in, and she started to panic thinking that it had been her crazy ex. Bobby couldn't understand why Carrie acted so strangely, and so, after chatting with his friends, he googled her. After finding the wanted poster, he cut off all contact with her. Carrie did try to reach out to him over the next few days, but he completely ignored her. But Bobby wasn't Carrie's only prospect. Towards the end of November that year, Carrie met a 28-year-old man at a dance party at the bar Happy Ending on Lower East Side. The man, Joe, lived in Greenpoint at the time and had been celebrating his birthday that night. He took to her instantly, was charmed by her, and invited her to a party he was having the following night. Carrie told him exactly what she told Bobby, that she worked for the company that does Coachella, Golden Voice. She often talked about how busy she was at work and how she even slept in the office some nights, how she was working on a book for Vice magazine, a coffee table book of photographs of bearded lads posing next to her I Love Beards tattoo. Joe thought that she was confident and upfront especially about sex, which initially threw him off balance. Carrie also struck up a friendship with Erica, Joe's 26-year-old roommate, who worked at the cafe Brooklyn Label in Greenpoint. Carrie told Erica that she had cancer and that she was terminally ill. In fact, Erica once caught Carrie coming out of Joe's room, coughing, with blood on her hand. In December, Carrie met Erica's 30-year-old librarian friend. He'd been writing Christmas cards at the cafe that Erica worked in when Carrie approached him to have a chat. They wound up going to a movie together, following which Carrie told him that she had cancer. The librarian thought that Carrie seemed perfectly healthy. There didn't appear to be anything wrong with her outside. Two days later, Carrie told him that she'd received a call from her doctors, 
the doctor said she had only two months left to live. At some point, Carrie said she was feeling unwell and wanted to go to the emergency room at Sloan Kettering. She told the librarian that the only reason she'd come to New York was so she could get treated at Sloan Kettering. In the emergency room, the doctors couldn't find her records, even after she gave them her social security number. The librarian initially dismissed this as an admin issue. These things happen all the time, don't they? Soon, the librarian realized that something wasn't right, and he googled her. He found the wanted poster. He sent her an email saying he knew everything. He knew who she was. He knew that she was wanted by the police for fraud and theory. He also told everyone he'd met through Carrie, and they all cut off contact with her, including Joe and Erica. Come January 2009, almost three months before Carrie was fired from Vice magazine, Carrie met a 24-year-old writer at an HBO party. By this point, she'd moved to Throop Avenue. The writer, just like Joe, Erica, Bobby and the librarian, felt drawn to Carrie. There was something compelling about her. Carrie and the writer began to spend more time with each other. He thought that Carrie was warm and attentive. She loved music and loved attending concerts and music festivals and knew so much about them. She told him she worked at Golden Voice and also said she could get him into concerts and music festivals. They did end up going to these concerts, but their names would never be on the lists. Nonetheless, they'd always managed to get in because of a charm. One wink at the door guy and they'd be inside no problem. The writer described Carrie as being sexually aggressive to guys who were more often than not eager for her attention. They liked that she was outgoing and brazen and upfront about sex. Carrie was also a social butterfly. She was warm and friendly towards both men and women. She'd take their contact details and follow up with them regularly. She was fantastic at networking. The writer and Carrie were still together in March when she got offered the job advice. They'd spent hours discussing if she should move from Golden Voice to Vice, even though her stories about working at Golden Voice were almost entirely fiction. On March 22nd, the day she got fired from Vice, she went into the bathroom and coughed up blood. She told the writer that she had lung cancer, and the writer believed that she'd sort of over-embellished the story because she seemed kind of healthy. She didn't look sick on the outside. Later that night, she texted him to say that she was at the Bellevue, and then, confoundingly, texted his roommate to say that she was at NYU Medical Center. The writer initially thought that perhaps she'd been transferred from Bellevue to NYU Medical Center. He visits her at the ER at NYU, where she claimed that she couldn't see out of her left eye. She also said she had a very intense lower left quadrant pain. According to her, the doctors performed a gastroendoscopy. The writer was confused. He didn't understand exactly what Carrie was trying to do. 
the next night. He visited a girl who he said was, quote, four degrees removed from Carrie. The girl said that Carrie didn't have any cancer and that she, quote, rips dudes off for six grand and flees bail. That girl's roommate worked for Golden Voice and confirmed that the company didn't even have a New York office. This was how the writer learned that Carrie had lied about everything. The exclusive article in the New York Observer stated that, quote, the Salt Lake City Police Department remains very, very interested in finding Miss Farrell. Carrie had absconded after Vice magazine called the cops on her and remained at large until May 2009 when she was arrested in Philadelphia. She'd posted an online video confessional on animalnewyork.com shortly before surrendering, saying she was, quote, taking care of things. In August 2009, Carrie pled guilty to third-degree felony forgery, two misdemeanor counts of issuing a bad check or draft, and one misdemeanor count each of attempted forgery, attempted identity fraud, and attempted issuing a bad check or draft. She was sentenced to nine months in jail. And that's a wrap on our first episode. I read that Carrie was up to her old tricks in January 2018. Connie Wang, a Refinery29 writer, revealed on Twitter that the notorious hipster grifter had tried to gain access to New York Fashion Week by pretending to be a writer for Refinery29. And it almost worked. <laughs> I guess old habits really do die hard. Thank you for listening to Grifter. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe and leave us a review. Links to the sources I used to research this episode are also included in the description. Until next time.